Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 10 and what a cracker it is today. I don't need to say a whole lot. We're talking about a a multiple Grand Slam champion, an Olympic gold medalist, the first ever Wimbledon wheelchair singles champion in 2016. A great guy, an inspirational story, Gordon Reid. Enjoy. So, Gordon Reid, lovely to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Look forward to having a chat with you. No, it's a pleasure. Magic to have you you on, Uh, Gordon. Thank you. So, a little little introduction. You don't need a whole lot of introduction, I'm sure, to many. You're our first ever world number one to be on the show. Um, You're our first multiple Grand Slam champion. We have had Grand Slam champions, but not multiple Grand Slam champions. Um, and you're also our first Olympic champion, yeah, to, to have on the show and gold medalist. Um, unbelievable, you know, looking into all the things you've achieved in the sport. And it, it's fantastic to have you. So a big welcome from myself and John on Control the Coronables. Great to have you. No, thanks a lot for, for inviting me on. I've, uh, I've seen what you guys are doing um, and trying to keep people entertained and energised during this period. And I think it's a great thing. So... I'm happy to be a part of it. No problem, uh, Gordon. How, how how are you finding the, this period during COVID nineteen? Uh, well, I think like like a lot of people, uh, it's just feeling a bit all a bit strange at the moment. Um, you know, I think the the weirdest thing for me, and I think a lot of people that are involved in the tennis world are in the same boat here. That this is probably the longest period of time I've been in the one place for about ten years of my life. So it's something that I'm not used to at all. Um, and yeah, there's been, some, of course, some, some good things to take out of it. Uh, there's been some, some challenges and obviously missing the, the tennis side of things, competing and traveling. Um, but, you know, looking at the bigger picture, it's, it's all understandable. And hopefully, um, you know, everybody's staying at home and following the regulations, we can get back to normality as soon as possible. And how are you, how you keeping yourself fit? physically mentally you know is there is there anything that you've been able to work on in your game you know even though obviously we can't get on the court how, how have you dealt with that yeah so i mean obviously in the uk we can still have our exercise outdoors every day um so i'm getting out into some of the local parks around glasgow and doing some uh, fitness sessions which including agility endurance um some hill sprints you know those sort of horrible things that they keep you in good shape, uh, so I'm doing plenty of that. Then I've got some uh, some rollers set up in my flat here in Glasgow, uh, which means I can put my tennis chair onto them, and it's, it works uh, kind of like a treadmill. Right. So I can do some good, uh, you know, speed and endurance sessions without leaving the flat as well. And then I've got quite a bit of little gym equipment here as well: some weights, pull-up bar, TRX. So plenty of equipment to to keep in shape. So no excuses if I come back a, a slob after this. 
I, I absolutely love it, Gordon. I, I mean, every high-performance athlete, they always find a way of some way to keep themselves active and keep that brain tipping, tipping over. I mean, it's, it's, it's vital that every day you're getting up and you're, you're, you're sticking at it. It's a breath of fresh air to, to, to listen to that. Yeah, I think it's, it's important, but I mean, it's something that, you know, when I stop playing tennis and stop competing, you know, I'll do anyway, because I think it's obviously good for your, for your health and for your well-being to stay active and uh, keep in as best shape possible. Um, but, you know, we're, we're really lucky. I think all the majority of the, the tennis players in the UK have been really well supported by the LTA and they've sent up equipment. Um, I'm sure some of the other people that I've spoken to have been in the same boat that they've had. Um, pieces sent up to them to, to help them stay on top of their programs. So, uh, you know, I think sometimes it's things like that that remind you how lucky you are that you get the support that you do. No, absolutely. And, and gone. so how, how we've kind of been working these podcasts, one of the big reasons, like you say, exactly how you say it, to kind of energise people through this time, educate them a little bit. And, you know, one of our big beliefs is how tennis is an amazing vehicle to to take people in lots of different directions within the sport and then after playing careers as well. We'd love to hear a little bit about your story, I suppose. So almost back to the, back to the beginning, how you started playing tennis, um, you know, how then you became a wheelchair tennis player. Um, I think it would be fantastic to hear that. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I'll start from the, the very start then. I think my first experience of tennis, no surprise, living in Scotland was indoors. So it was just uh, a short tennis club, I think I originally joined. It was just the softballs and little mini nets indoors. Um, I think that was my first experience. And then I enjoyed that a lot. So I joined uh, my local club, which is Helensworth Tennis Club. Yep. Um, and my family played. So I've got two brothers and a sister. They played a little bit. And my mum and dad both played as well. So, yeah, it was really just a family thing that we all enjoyed. Um and then, yeah, probably just like any kid, I, I just played as much as I could. Uh, local coaching sessions and during the summer, I'd just be down at the tennis club every day and playing the little daily tournaments and the summer camps and those sort of things because, you know, my family were all there as well. So something I really enjoyed. Um, and then how I originally got into wheelchair tennis was uh, when I was 12 years old, a week before my 13th birthday, I was just... You know, I was really healthy. I was really active as you know, a tennis player. I played a lot of football, did a lot of other sports, athletics, gymnastics, anything I could give my give my hand to. I tried. Um, and then, yeah, a week before my 13th birthday, I was out with some friends. We went back to my house and I went to stand up in my chair. And uh, my legs just completely gave way underneath me. And originally, we all thought it was hilarious because, you know, 12-year-old kids, not fearing the worst, just thought, we didn't really know what was going on, but it was just funny because I couldn't walk 10 steps in a row without buckling over. Um, so I had a bit of a laugh with that. And then, you know, my friends were all going back out again and I tried to join them. And but it was ended up, I had one arm around one friend, one arm around another and trying to get to the bottom of my driveway and I just couldn't even walk two steps. So my mum called me back in, phoned the doctor. And he said, oh, you know, it might just be bad cramp from some training or whatever. So... You know, yep. just rest and get some hot cold on the back of your legs. You should be okay. And went to bed that night, okay. Woke up in the morning and felt okay. And then just through that next sort of seven or eight hours that next day, um, my legs, I just started getting a lot of bad pains from like the feet up to sort of waist. Yep. And then at the end of the day, I was completely paralyzed from the waist down. 
and I was taken in an ambulance to uh, A and E in Glasgow um, to start some getting some treatment. Wow! And what? So what was it? What did it, how how did it, someone come on so quick? Um, so after about a week of tests, you know, uh, lumbar punctures, MRIs, all different kind of blood tests and stuff, uh, they ended up diagnosing it as a condition called transverse myelitis, yeah. which is a neurological condition, um, which is totally random. I think it happens to about one in a million people, so it's quite unusual. Um, and it's basically when your immune system, instead of attacking a virus that you might have or an illness, attacks your own spinal cord. And then that spinal cord swells up and damages the nerves in the spine. Yeah. And then that's what causes um, problems to your uh, limbs that are affected. Um, so then I spent six months in hospital, in uh, York Hill Children's Hospital in Glasgow, where I went through rehab and just the recovery, really, of, of the condition. Um, and then, yeah, after six months, uh, I was released from hospital. I could go home because uh, my, like, for example, my house, my bedroom's upstairs, so I couldn't get to my bedroom. So I, my house had to be adapted a little bit. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think sort of it's, you know, it was obviously a really tough time for me in hospital, but actually it was the period of time moving home and getting home and getting, trying to get back to normal life that was the most difficult because yeah. you realise that every single thing you do in life, you're now going to have to adapt and change. Absolutely, and and it's what an inspirational story that you've you've gone through that, and then and then you've dealt with it. How how long did it take for you to to get into a headspace where you'd accepted what had happened to be able to then obviously move forward to be having such a successful career that you're having? Hey, well, it probably took quite a long time to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's I think it's. It's like losing anything. It's almost like dealing with the grief of, of not having it anymore. Yeah. Um, so obviously there was a period of denial, a period of a bit of anger, trying to blame people, but there's nothing to blame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then eventually, you know, you, you come to accept it and come to terms with the situation you're in and you just make the most of it. So, you know, it probably took me a few years to, to get to grips with it. And, you know, as a young kid, it's a difficult thing to, to come to terms with. Um, but sport and tennis was a big part of, of helping me through that and yeah. you know, I started playing wheelchair tennis just when I was leaving the hospital so about six months after Did you? originally yeah, yeah. had the condition so that was a, a big factor and helped me get through and, and get yeah, over to the other side and even just you know going to a wheelchair tennis club in Glasgow and seeing the other wheelchair tennis players there and seeing yeah. what you know they could do in a court and how happy and you know how great characters they were even though they had a disability you know that was really inspiring for me no no absolutely and what how was how was playing tennis in a wheelchair for the first few times after being obviously you, you played tennis at a pretty good level up until then how, how restricting did it feel how you know what was what were your first experiences of that like yeah it was, it was quite a mixed um, feeling because part of me was just you know, overjoyed that I was back in the tennis court and back yeah. involved in the, the sport that I loved. So, you know, a part of me loved it. And then another part of me almost was so frustrated by it because yeah. I was so used to being able to just step out of the way at the last minute and, yeah. you know, um, retrieve a ball or, you know, I, obviously I, I wasn't very strong still in my upper body at that point, so I couldn't move very quickly around the court. And um, I wasn't used to being in the chair, so I wasn't very fluid. So it was, it was difficult because a lot of things are... Could have done before, 
uh, when I was playing tennis. I couldn't do anymore. Yeah. So it definitely took a long time to to get used to that, and that's the most you know the most difficult part of the sport is learning the movement and yeah. have to position yourself um, to the ball. So yeah, it's, it was tough, but yeah, like I say, it was mixed because I was just loving the fact that I could play tennis again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and how how quickly did you become good? And I guess when did you realise that you were pretty good at it as well? Um, well, I mean, because I'd played tennis before. I had a lot of the shots, um, yeah. and obviously I understood the game. The only thing I had to change was my backhand because I used to play double-handed on my feet, yeah. and you can't do that in a wheelchair because of the momentum of the, the body yeah. weight and the wheels. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to change to the backhand, the recall, the reverse backhand in wheelchair tennis, which is yeah. where you actually hit um, your backhand with the same side of the strings as your forehand, just when you take yeah. take the racket over to that side. Um, so yeah, I picked it up pretty quickly uh, once I learned the movement as well. Uh, I was, you know, half decent, and then it was quite early on. I think only about a year after I started playing that I think I got picked up by the at the time it was the Tennis Foundation that um, looked after disability tennis in the UK. Yeah. They sort of picked me up and said, you know, like you could be decent, so we're going to take you on to a couple of junior camps and development camps that they ran. Um, but I think you know it was probably a few years later when I realised that. You know, I was not bad because I was starting to travel to a couple of junior events internationally and that was sort of when it started to get quite exciting. And is the tournament structure pretty strong? Is it, is it a pretty strong tournament structure throughout the world, even in the junior age groups as well? Yeah, I mean, a lot more now uh, these days, even more than when I started playing. Yeah. You know, I started playing in 2005, um, yeah. so about yeah, 15 years ago. And the tournaments now, uh, the Uniqlo wheelchair tennis tour at the moment, I think it's over something like there's over th- 400 tournaments or something, or 300 tournaments or something. So there's a, there's a lot of events worldwide. Um, if you wanted to, you could play a tournament every week in, under normal circumstances. So, yeah, it's grown all the time. Um, obviously, we're, we're becoming a big part of the Grand Slams as well now, um, which is really exciting for us as, as wheelchair players. And something that I've seen changed a lot over the years um, since since I started playing. So, yeah, it's moving in the right direction, the tour, and um, yeah, hopefully it's bigger things to come. And and Gordy, how, how many how many weeks uh, on the year would you be travelling with with with, uh, with the game? So usually I'd be travelling over over half the year, and I'd probably normally play between sort of. 18 and 22 events depending on uh, the calendar and the year and what kind of um, period of, of, the, of my game I'm in uh, and then I'm down in London a lot training at the NTC in London uh, and then obviously just travelling you know the extra days acclimatisation and then days in between events when you're abroad so yeah there's, yeah. there's a lot of travel involved so yeah that's why this this period of time has it's been nice in some ways because yeah. I'm not used to being able to have a routine at home but yeah also getting a little bit restless now because um, I'm not yeah. used to being in the same place for such a long period of time and, and when you're at home what would your daily schedule look like in terms of your training yeah so every day is obviously a little bit different um, it's a combination of on court obviously tennis training where I'm doing that up at Stirling University um, so we've got a really good set up there um, you know, it's the national national centre for Scotland. 
Um, obviously, the one of the national academies, the GB National Academies, is is now based there. So you know, I've been lucky to link in with those guys a little bit recently, um, come into some of their sessions and have a little bit of access to the coaches there. So I've been really fortunate with that. Um, and yeah, it's just a nice environment. You know, you've got yeah. um, you've got the the scholars there, the uni players, the uni squads that I joined in with as well. You've got some of the top juniors there. So it's a nice atmosphere to the training and it's not too far from where I live as well, which is just perfect. And, and I've seen, Gordon, I've, I've watched you play and I remember the first time I watched you play, it blew me away how fast your racket head speed goes. Like, it was like, I, I felt like I was watching Rafa, you know, and the, the left <laughs> and, that, and that, for me, you know, absolutely, you are the Rafa of wheelchair tennis. So, so for people listening, you know, with the training, who who are your practice partners and sparring partners? I, I know actually before this, I because um, uh, I coach Ali Collins, a Scottish girl. I know you know Ali, and and Ali had said, oh yeah, I used to play with Gordon a bit when we were younger, and you know, and, and, and used to talk about that as well. So, can you explain to the listeners, I guess, how how that practice session works? You know, you're obviously playing with able-bodied tennis players. And then how, how, how the practice works, because obviously you have the two bounces, they have the one bounce, you know, and, and yeah. Yeah, so um, obviously one of the difficult things for us as, as wheelchair players is there's not as big a pool of players, especially at the top of the game, as you'd have uh, in able-bodied tennis. So for me, being in Scotland and being really the only professional player up here, um, it's not possible for me to train with other wheelchair players yeah. uh, when I'm at home. So that's why I use a combination of um, some squads training and then obviously just individual sessions as well, which can be tailored to around what I'm working on. Um, but yeah, I'm involved in the university squads. So um, really, it can be a range of level. It can be from the first team sometimes playing with some of those guys to you know yeah. fourth, fifth team players um, you know, to get some match playing on my belt. That's a yeah. good, good level of tennis as well up in Sterling. Um, so a combination of working with them and then really the perfect sort of training partner for me um, if I don't have a wheelchair player is usually juniors around the age of like 13, 14 because yeah. at that age they're not too tall and um, hitting the ball too hard for us yeah. and obviously one of the things that is a big difference is the serve and return and yeah. they're sitting lower and the trajectory is different yeah. so that's one of the more difficult parts for us so if the kids are a little bit smaller, then that makes it a little bit easier for us. Um, and just obviously their speed around the court is normally more similar to ours and the pace of the ball as well. So, yeah, I think it's just being um, being creative with, with sessions and um, the coaches I've worked with in the past have been really good at setting those up to, um, you know, to work on the specific things that myself and also the person that's on the other side of the court is going to gain something from a session. No, absolutely, because I think it is it's one of the, as, as an academy owner and as someone who all of us have been around the sport for a long time, I think one of the things with tennis is you do rely on the person you play with, which is why often parents and players complain about who, who, who which squads they're in, and you know, because it is, whereas with a sport like golf, swimming, different things like that, there's actually no impact to 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 that, and so it's always it's always a challenge. Would you? I know you touched on it there. Is your preference to train with another wheelchair player? Is that is that more relevant, or is your preference to are you able to get pushed a bit more? Maybe 
by playing with an able-bodied player? Well, it's more relevant to train with a wheelchair player, but yeah. I enjoy training with an able-bodied player yeah. more yeah. Right. Um, yeah. because you're almost playing up to that next level. So, yeah. as you say, it just pushes you a little bit more. and um, You know, you always want to be training harder than you're going to have to compete. Absolutely. So, um, that's always a good challenge for me. And, yeah, I know you mentioned uh, Ali. Um, you know, I used to train a lot with Ali when she was probably about 13, 14. There was a really good squad of juniors coming through in Scotland, you know, the types of Aidy McHugh and uh, Ewan Lumsden, Maya, you know, those sort of guys. There's a really nice little squad of players that I used to train with back then and, you know, sometimes, you know, still do with some of the juniors now. And another great thing about training with kids that age is, you know, they they have respect, but they, they still want to kick your ass. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the competitiveness is there and, you know, they're not taking it easy on you because you're in a chair. You know, they want to they wanna hit winners past you, which is perfect because that's what you need to, to train against. That's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. So I have, to, I have to move at this point into 2016 because what a year that was. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. You know, the achievements that you had that year from obviously Wimbledon title, Olympic gold medalist. And, and also that year was the first Wimbledon, I believe, where, if memory serves me correct, caught 17 and, and the Duchess of Cambridge came down and she didn't go on centre court. And there was this massive thing. And, and I remember I was at Wimbledon that year. There was a really big buzz around the, the, the wheelchair sport. And then yourself winning, Andy Murray winning for Scotland. There was, there was just so many things that happened. Talk, talk us through that. Talk us through that experience. And then maybe what that then also means now for the wheelchair, wheelchair tennis. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was an incredible experience that, that year as a whole, really, for me. Um, you know, I, I qualified for my first Grand Slam events um, in 2014. Yeah. So, I'll just explain quickly, in, in, um, the Grand Slams for wheelchair players, it's normally a draw of eight, eight players for the men and women. And so that's the top seven in the world and then one wild card. So yeah. it's obviously really difficult to, to qualify for. Yeah. Um, so it took me a while to, to achieve that. And then 2015, I had quite a bit of success. I won my first two doubles Grand Slam titles in 2015. Yeah. But, you know, I felt like I hadn't really achieved what I'd wanted to achieve and perform to the level I wanted to perform in the singles at the Grand Slams. So I worked a lot on the psychological side of my game um, sort of during 2015, the latter end of that. And then, yeah, went, went out in 2016, won my first Grand Slam singles title in Australia and made the final of Roland Garros, lost in the final there. And then, yeah, Wimbledon came along, where in 2016, that was the first time we had a singles event for wheelchair tennis. So it was obviously a, a really historic moment for, for our sport and for the players involved in it. Um, and, yeah, to, to go there and, and be the first winner is you know, something that's really special because... You know, Wimbledon's got so much history, and yep. be able to add to that, and you know, be the first name in the in the champions board is is something pretty pretty amazing for you know a home Grand Slam as well. I've got I've got goosebumps thinking about it. It's just unbelievable. And, and what did you did you because that was in reality that was probably the first time I started hearing your name a little bit more mainstream. You know, obviously, people in the tennis world would have would have known about you and what you're what you're doing, but it felt like you became a 
different level of name and, and almost celebrity at the, at the end of that. Did you, did you feel that? Um, yeah, I, I know. I definitely noticed a shift. Um, well, because, you know, Wimbledon is the tournament in the UK, yeah. isn't it? Uh, when it comes yeah. to tennis, you know, it's the one time of the year where everybody wants to watch tennis and is interested in it. So, you know, when I won in uh, Australia in January of that year, you know, there was definitely you know, some, there was some press, you know, I had to fly home via Manchester to go to the BBC studios and do interviews and yeah. be on, you know, live TV and stuff. So there, there was definitely interest. And I remember being on, on the plane on the way home from Melbourne and picking up a newspaper and I was on the back page. And I was like, oh, what's going on here? Um, so, you know, there, there was interest in it at that point, but you know, it was a whole new level when it, when it came to Wimbledon. And, and, you know, actually being the British event and having the success there, I think, you know, people, for me, for me, the best thing was how much people were just enjoying the wheelchair side of the sport and, you know, the, how much positive feedback there was with the quality of the tennis and the levels of entertainment. I mean, that's one of the most important things for me anyway as, as one of the wheelchair players is to entertain people and for them to see that, you know, we're, we're great athletes. So, and um, yeah, that was definitely a big shift at, at that moment. Yeah, Gordy, I have to, I have to shadow what, what Dan said. I've got goosebumps here listening to you. It's just an unbelievable story listening to this. And, but I, I have to also say that the elephant in the room about Scottish tennis. I mean, it's unbelievable what you guys have done over, you know, the last, I don't know, decade or, or so. You've yourself a Grand Slam champion. You've, Jamie Murray, a Grand Slam champion. You have Andy Murray. You have the likes of, you know, uh, numerous other players like Colin Fleming, etc. That's that's gone and played for the country. I know Elena Baltasha. I know she's passed away. She, I think, also from from your neck of the woods in Scotland as well. What's the secret? I mean, you guys are just. I mean, it's unbelievable what you, what you guys as a nation have done. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty incredible feat um, to have, you know, so much success from such a small nation in a small part of the, the UK. Um, I wish I could tell you the secret. I don't know, unfortunately. There's nothing, nothing we've got bottled up here. But I think, um, you know, a part of it is, I think in general, I think, you know, a lot of Scottish people have a lot of passion around what they're doing and a lot of tenacity and determination um, and a kind of will to, um, you know, to strive to, to fight and challenge themselves. So, um, you know, maybe that's something to do with it. Um, I think something I've noticed is a bit of a trend when it comes to a lot of Scottish athletes, not just in tennis, but a lot of the top Scottish athletes I've met is all of them are very humble and they, um, you know, they don't forget where they, where they come from and for, they don't forget their roots and they're all, a lot of the time really grounded. And I think that's something that you see you know, um, you know, exaggerated even more so in, in Andy and Jamie because those those are two of the, the world's biggest sports stars and achieved stuff on the highest um, platform. And you know, you, you you meet them and they're so down to earth and just real normal guys. So, um, you know, I, th I think that's probably got something to do with it as well. You know, people sticking to their roots. Yeah. And, and yeah. what does it mean? What what does it mean now moving forward? Obviously, not to wish your career away. You've got, I'm sure, you've got plenty more to give to the sport. But what do you want your legacy to be? 
for wheelchair tennis in Scotland, but I guess also globally as well. Where where would you like to see the sport grow to? Um, well, I think the most important thing for me is just that more and more people are playing the sport. Um, yeah. You know, I know how much the sport has given me and, um, you know, how much positive impact it's had on, on my life. Yeah. So I want that to, you know, transfer to as many other people as possible. So it's around creating as many opportunities we can um, for people to, to try the sport and enjoy the sport and also to, to watch it and enjoy the ent- entertainment of it as well. So I think for me personally, and I know this is shared, a view that's shared by a lot of other wheelchair players is, you know, we're looking to try and have a little bit more integration with the ATP and WTA in the future. Um, yeah. You know, outside of the Grand Slams, we're involved alongside a, a couple of other ATP and WTA, event, WTA events. So we're at Queen's now as a um, competitive event. Okay. We're at um, AB and AMRO in, in Rotterdam in February. We always have an event there. So, you know, it's already shown to be possible and um, I think well, uh, well taken on. So in the future, hopefully we can integrate with a few more events and help grow the top side of the sport that way. Yeah. And then, yeah, keep improving the, the grassroots as well and getting as many people as possible playing. Well, in 2016, you, you said you were at BBC, you were doing interviews. You've now moved up in the world. 2020, you're on a podcast with Control the Coronavirus. You know, I mean, things are, you know, things are, things are seriously moving here, God. You know, made the big time now. This could be it. This could be the moment that it really, it really goes global. Um, and, yeah, and, and what about yourself? What, what's your, what does your career look like after, after you play? Is that something you've thought of? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, people keep asking me that more and more these days, and I'm wondering if I'm starting <laughs> to get any grey hairs or anything because I'm only 28. So <laughs> I'm hoping that I've got, I'm hoping that I've got a few, few more years left to thank yet. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, as your career starts to uh, to move on, and, and you know that it's going to be, you're not going to be there forever. You know, we can't all be Roger and, and playing till we're 40 and beating everybody else. But um, you know. I'm not too sure what it, what entails afterwards yet, and um, it's something that you know in probably a couple of years or during the next couple of years I'll have to take a little bit more thought to decide what I want to do. But you know I'd love to be involved in the sport in, in some capacity, and and you know help move the sport forward and um, help other players that that come through. So whether that's in coaching or working with the LTA in some way or another, you know I wouldn't be against anything like that so I think keep, keeping those options open would be, would be great and then yeah I might look to do something away from the sport as well um, you know before I, I went full time I was at university studying psychology which is something yeah. that still interests me so I would yeah. maybe consider going back and, and getting a degree um, stuff in the media is also something that I've enjoyed in the past and uh, interests me as well so I think that would have to be a possibility that would maybe go be a route that I'd consider going down. So yep. I think there's a few options and um, yeah, I'll have to take a little bit more consideration of that over the next few years and yep. decide what it is I want to do when I, when I finish. And I'm sure once you, you step back from the career and I have no doubts that there's, there's lots more that you're going to achieve as a player, you'll realise the magnitude of what you've done, you know, and, and from the outside, 
looking in. It really is. When when somebody mentions wheelchair tennis, your name is at, at the tip of everyone's tongue, you know, and I'm sure it's not the time to start reflecting too much on that now, I'm sure, but that that is going to absolutely open many, many doors, you know, so it's you, you can certainly be very proud. It's, it's inspirational listening to you. Um, yes. And it's there's there's lots that can be achieved, and I'm sure we'll make a little push here for to get to get yourself, Andy and Jamie, together to do something as well. You know the fact that you know the fact that you three from Scotland have achieved what you've achieved. You know there has to be some something that comes together with you three as well. Um, to to finish off, Gordon, what we like to do just to get a little bit lighthearted to get to know you a bit better, listeners to know nothing too difficult. Don't worry, um, just quick fire round. Um, we try and say three seconds per answer. Um, the 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 longest so far was a seven and a half minute answer by somebody. <laughs> He didn't quite stick to the rules, um, but as much as we can, sticking to the rules. So, um, doubles or singles? Uh, doubles. Your favourite slam? Wimbledon, easy. Rangers or Celtic? Rangers, easy. Yeah, Rangers, boy. <laughs> no yeah. question. No questions asked. One rule that you would change in wheelchair tennis? Um... Two points for a drop shot winner. <laughs> um, serve or return? Serve. And no sitting on the fence here. The most important question of the lot, Andy or Jamie? Oh, that's <laughs> That's going to be the longest answer. <laughs> um, I'll go with Andy. Andy was the one I watched first, so I'll stick with him. You've given doubles to Jamie as well, so there's yeah. you know they, we'll take love a them both, love them both. Gordon, you're an absolute legend. Thank you, honestly. It's been it's been amazing to listen to you, and I'm sure you know giving people the opportunity to hear your story. It's inspirational, and if it gets an extra few people that that are going through a difficult time themselves, that that feel actually, do you know what? This is a sport that I can I can take up. You know, there's you know. I'm a massive believer in there's always opportunity that comes from bad things that happen and never has that been truer in listening to your story. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, I think, I think that's you know, something that I've learned over the years. Um, sometimes the, the most difficult times or the most difficult events in your life are the things that can open the doors to the, the best things or the most positive things in your life. So, um, you know, I think you mentioned it before, there's always positives to find out of any situation. And I think... With all the negatives that are going on at the moment, I think there's always opportunities to, to find positives out of it. And I think with things like this, I think a lot of times you see the, the best side of humanity come across. So hopefully, um, yeah, as a, as a world sort of population, but also in the tennis world as well, hopefully better things come out of this and we come out uh, as a better as a, as a whole. So, um, yeah, I'm just hope, hope everybody's staying safe at home and, um, I think you're doing a great job with this with this podcast, keeping people entertained and people people kind of together in the tennis world. So credit to you guys as well, and, and thanks for having me on. Thanks, thanks very much, Gordon. Thanks a million for coming on. Wow, how good was that? I hope you all enjoyed it, and an, an inspirational story. Um, something we can we can all learn lots from, you know, especially in these difficult times right now. You take away that message that 
in bad times when difficult things happen, challenging things happen, there's always opportunity opens and no better than to hear Gordon's story for how he's done that. I want to say a big thank you to Gordon for, for coming on to the show and inspiring us all with, with his story and and I hope you can all take a lot from that. As I say each time, please keep sharing, liking and getting the podcast out. Um, these podcasts really make a difference if they get into the right hands. So share away. Let's get people in the tennis community involved and hearing these amazing stories. And reach out to us if you want to hear anyone. Then we'll certainly be getting in touch and trying to get as many people as we can onto the show to continue entertaining you, energising you and educating you through this time. My name's Dan Keenan. My co-host John McGann, a big thanks for all of you for the support.